focus on the few critical things, right? Because it's so overwhelming, we can say, hey, that's a lot of noise. What you're going to do is focus on these three things and we're going to build a roadmap for you to do it. And so it's not overwhelming and it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg because there are a lot of things we can do that are low cost and, and you know, you have access to and can go in and get started. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Adam Moore, here with today's co-host, Matt Colocello, who's sitting in for Chloe Goodry-Reed. And in continuing our coverage of ESG, we're joined today by Elba Pareja Gallagher, founder of Sustainability Navigator. Elba is an ESG expert, sustainability consultant, and keynote speaker with many years of experience working with corporate stakeholders in the Fortune 50. Though her company, Sustainability Navigator, Elba offers coaching, and mentoring to small minority businesses on how to follow ESG for environmental, social, and government regulations, particularly in the sustainability sector. Elba is uniquely suited to help guide small businesses in starting or strengthening their ESG programs. We're so excited to have her on our show. Welcome, Elba. We really appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you, Adam and Matt. This is going to be fun. Looking forward to it. Totally. We are too. Elba, You've had such a fascinating life and career, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about your journey and how you came to work in the world of ESG. Absolutely. My path is very interesting because I didn't start as a sustainability expert, but my experiences along the way really made it a perfect fit. So where I come from is really in a traditional business background, all in finance. I really... I have an intimate knowledge of revenues and expenses, how, how a company spends their money. You know, at UPS, they have something like over $25 billion in procurement spending across all kinds of categories. Um, so having that knowledge, I also lived in Asia. I was a CFO of a big business unit. I've worked in investor relations, so I know what matters and motivates investors. And then I flipped over to e-commerce strategy, which was the big buzz trying to transform the business. I also founded a nonprofit organization for gender equality. And then lastly, I joined sustainability almost three years ago. It was a new role. And I feel like right there, I found my, what I call ikigai, which is a Japanese Mm. term where, you know, you do the work you love, the work you're good at, what you can be paid for and what the world needs. Okay. That was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I learned about ikigai from your newsletter. Yes, yes, I love it. Since I lived in Asia, throughout Asia for three years, I really became a fan of all things Asia, Japanese, all the traditions, South Korea, Chinese, Taiwan, loved it. And that's Mm. where I learned about Ikigai. Love that. That's what we find out a lot in this space, right? In the supplier diversity, the DE&I, the ESG space, people kind of come into it, I always call it by happy accident. Right. You never sit there and go, I think I'm going to set out to be the supplier diversity guy or gal. Right. All of a sudden you just kind of find yourself in it. You fall in love with it and you just can't get enough of it. Exactly. I love how you said that. That's what happened to me. Right. Okay. So kind of talk us through your little bit of your happy accident. How did that happen? Right. Because like you said, you haven't had all these roles and then all of a sudden you kind of found yourself in ESG and then it clicked. 
It did. And what happened to me, you know, especially because of my, I think of myself as a social impact entrepreneur because I founded this nonprofit mm. on gender equality. Okay. And I think that gave me the taste of your know, purpose-driven work. And so when UPS created a brand new position with the title of stakeholder engagement, which is really a comprehensive thought about sustainability, right? Who are the stakeholders that you impact their business? They impact you. You know, who are they? What do you know about them? How are you creating value for them? And that was what this position was. And I was like, wow, I know how companies make money. I've, you know, interacted with so many different kinds of stakeholders through my journey of professional working that it was just perfect. So that was my happy accident, so to speak. Love that. I absolutely love that. And then what I find happens is it just kind of spills out naturally into your family. When I started getting into supplier diversity and have lived that life, all of a sudden I've got like my wife and my children going, look, this one has the WeBank symbol. Look, this one, you know, as you're starting to see all this, I'm like, this is absolutely amazing. So it's it's fun. I know. It's a great point. So I don't have kids, but I have, I'm married. And so when I started on this journey of being elevating my sustainability education, he was like my guinea pig, right? And I'd come home and I would explain to him, you know, we went through this whole thing on ESG and, you know, he finally understood it and could recite it back to me. And, and then he would, he plays golf. And so he'd tell his friends, you know, Hey, what about this? What about that? So it has been fun that way to engage your nice. family and friends. Nice. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a great lead in right to the whole sustainability navigator and what you've set up. So how did you decide to do that? What was that spark? You're like, okay, I'm going to step out and this is, this is really what I'm going to do now. I think I am, I am in such a privileged position that I worked for this gigantic corporation with lots of financial and other resources. And that enabled me to really benefit from information and really the kind of information that small businesses and people that haven't worked in that environment don't have access to. And because, you know, remember back to when I said, I feel like I'm a social impact entrepreneur, I want to share what I know with people who don't have access to it. And so I was like, I don't want to go work for another giant company and do consulting for giant companies. I want to work with the small and medium sized businesses, especially diverse SMBs to help them get access to information that they don't have. And so that's my focus is really small and medium-sized businesses. How can I share my secrets, sustainability roadmaps and execution tricks, tips for starting a program from nothing, right? Because that's people often don't have a staff. They don't have time or money to get this high, you know, falutin educations on sustainability. And, but I have that. And so I want to, give back. I want to share. Love it. And when you're consulting with SMBs or when you're just meeting SMBs, right? Recognizing this need, what does that need look like? I mean, we've discussed on the show that smaller companies are being asked to comply with regulations because they're in the supply chains of larger companies that are required to comply with certain regulations. Can you just talk, talk about that and, and talk about what companies are coming to you looking for? Yeah. So I would say that a lot of times small companies, they're overwhelmed, rightly so, because sustainability mm -hmm. is incredibly complicated. I have this, this list that shows what's included in the E, the S, and the G, and is a long list with a lot of technical jargon. And I can totally imagine that you would just be like, oh my God, Elba, I don't even know where to begin. So I won't do anything because I just don't know what to do. 
So I think knowing where to begin is the first step, right? And so we have to understand what is your company's mission? Forget anything to do with sustainability, right? Just what what are you in business to do? Who are your stakeholders? What matters to them? What are your business goals? And then you start to say, well, in that business goal, what could we do with the sustainability stuff to amplify the business results? Because what people may not understand is when you are operating in a more sustainable way, you can make more money and you can increase your brand you know, level. So it's, it's a win-win-win. And people think that it's going to cost them money to do sustainability when in fact, it can save you money because it opens your eyes to different ways of doing things. So Matt, back to your you know, question, what they, what they should care about is where to start, right? And so we can show them some tools. And guess what? A lot of them are free. And I'm going to give you some places you can go to get free where to start sustainability tools. But the big things that are top of mind right now, I'm going to give you three. And that's human rights, what's going on with the controversy around ESG and sustainability, And then what's called scope three emissions and the Securities and Exchange Commission, Matt, this is kind of what you're alluding to, right? That the big companies are going to be required to do certain things that the little companies may think they're not impacted, but oh, yes, they are because the big companies are going to have to report on things that require the small companies to share information. And if you don't even know what that is or that you're going to be asked for it, it creates a lot of challenges. You've got to be prepared. So human rights, the ESG sustainability controversy, and then these this SEC rules that are coming to the big people. You make a great point because it kind of comes it comes down to money sometimes. And I've had the privilege of working on both sides of the aisle, right, for corporate America and a small diverse business. And I remember doing matchmaking, and I'm talking to the guy, and he looks at me, and goes, "Well, Adam, I understand what you're doing. Tell me what you're doing around sustainability. That's what I want to hear." So the whole matchmaking pitch changes now in the era of ESG. Corporations are savvy. They're sitting there going, we kind of already know what you do. You've given us our one pager. That's that's great. Now I want to hear about this ESG portion of it because to your point, they're already thinking about who can not just deliver the product, but who can report these key pieces that I need back. So it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, companies need to reach out to you. If, they're, if they've got a Fortune 100 on their target list, they need to be talking to you even before they have the contract in front of them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we can you know, help them focus on the few critical things, right? Because it's so overwhelming, we can say, hey, that's a lot of noise. What you're going to do is focus on these three things and we're going to build a roadmap for you to do it. And so it's not overwhelming and it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg because there are a lot of things we can do that are low cost and, and you know you have access to and can go in and get started. That's awesome. We're going to jump into your other your other three things pertain, pertaining to the world of ESG in a second. But I wanted to ask, just specifically, when we talk about SMBs or small minority-owned businesses and sustainability, what in particular would you say should or is on the minds of small minority business owners? And in particular, is there a connection between the field of sustainability and then and then diverse business owners? that is particular or unique that you find? Yeah, so what's interesting is that if you think about the components of sustainability, which I mentioned, there's this long list, right? E has a bunch of things, S and G. Well, in the S, which is social responsibility, that's where the diverse, the diversity comes into play. DEI in general company, right? What are they doing to elevate and make equal access opportunity to all of their 
employees and suppliers. So all of that is in the S. So what's top of mind is how can you both create a, a strategy for your own small business to have a sustainability program? And two, how do you participate in other people's sustainability programs that benefit your organization? And that's you know where the supplier diversity comes in. And I love, Adam, that you talked about the matchmaking, right? Because that's a great example of how the big people bring and execute sustainability in the social impact space, right? So that these small businesses benefit from someone else's sustainability strategy. Right. Right. Exactly. And I love what you're saying, because you're basically also telling your clients, look, the big corporate, they have a huge team that's doing ESG. And maybe they don't have a huge team, but they have a lot of people in the various areas. They have DE&I folks, they have supplier diversity folks, they have lawyers, you know, they have consultants. You have you. Right. And I like what you're saying. It's like, don't listen to their noise. Maintain your lane. Do it well. Give them the data. They're going to be happy, but they're going to throw a ton of anacronyms, jargon, business language at you. Maintain your lane and stay calm. Yep. And what I would say is that I would love for small businesses to have this super short, easy kind of roadshow or elevator speech where they focus on just those top important things that the big people hear. And they're like, okay. They are doing something and they, you know, they are stepping up and am going to pay attention and help this small organization because they are trying. And so that's the goal, right? How do we give you the talking points and the action steps to take so that you can demonstrate your commitment to sustainability through your own small business? And through that same point, now I'm starting to think tactically, right? So the one thing as a supplier diversity manager or, or you own the supplier, your company, it's like, how do I get in front of the right people? I hear this all the time, right? How do we get in front of the right people? How do we get corporates to listen to us? Blah, blah, blah. Especially there is a, a plethora of suppliers in the contingent staff augmentation space, right? And you want to talk about a space that's filled, right? Which is funny because there's still open jobs out there, but it's hard to get people to listen to you. Before, if I'm hearing you correctly, a strategy could be find a company that's kind of on the chopping block in the ESG realm who maybe just got their wrist slapped, right, from something, go to them and say, I don't want to talk to you about contingent labor, though that's what I do. But what I do want to talk to you about is how I can help give you the positive impact in your ESG score. That's a conversation because now you're being brought in. It's like, oh, yeah, I get it. We have 50 other suppliers, but this one does this and ESG really well, and we are on the chopping block for ESG. That's a road in. Adam, I love that. You are so right, right? I always not, you know, when I, I mentor early career professionals just on general career. And one thing I always tell them is, how are you differentiating yourself from the others? And wow, what a way to differentiate yourself if you tell them, hey, look, I know everybody's talking about this other problem, but what if I can show you how we can address that problem in a win-win way through sustainability strategies that we are working on? Let me show you, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and by the way, here's the report. Here's my product that I'm going to mm -hmm. give you. Yep, exactly. And, you know, people, especially when I was in this big giant corporation, I loved when an underdog would come to me and you can see that they're trying and they're implementing something. I love helping people who are helping themselves. So the big guys, they do want to help people who want to help themselves. So if you don't have a perfect sustainability strategy or you know, something sophisticated, but yet you show them that you're 
are working on it and this is what you're doing and you ask questions, maybe you could even ask and say, hey, can can I meet with your sustainability team and let's brainstorm and collaborate on ways that we could work together, right? That, as a member of the sustainability team, I loved when people wanted to talk to us. Right, because we can, we are going to find those win-win collaborations. It's so true. It's like the ESG team feels like they're in a corner, and they're only brought out into the light like once a quarter when they got to publish the report. Right. Oh, so let's talk about that. It's not on the script, but let's talk about that for a second. The other big term that's always tied with ESG is CSR. We talk about it on this show all the time. How do you? I'd love to hear your angle on this, Elba. How do you explain CSR to a small business? Yeah. So to me. Corporate social responsibility and overall sustainability, it's the same thing. I have this Venn diagram that I use, which is the three intersecting circles, E, S, and G. And you know where they intersect in the middle, that I have a big target on the image because that's where you want to do, where you want to be. When you're in balance, caring for the environment, managing your company in a responsible way and ethically, which is the governance, then you're right in the middle. And so that not only is intersection called sustainability, it's also called, you know, corporate social responsibility. Because let me just quickly say, when you talk about the the social equity, not only is it on the S part, but it's on the E part, right? Meaning when you, let's say you plant trees, Are you planting them only in the fancy neighborhoods or are you planting them across all the economic places, not just the fancy neighborhoods? Exactly. Love that. Yes. You know, the other thing I'm going to sneak in here, Matt and Adam, is we were talking a little bit about a procurement, right? Oh, yes. I I would love to find out. I think, Adam, you kind of touched on this and really the way I, my path to getting into sustainability. You know, I was first a finance and business professional and then later it became sustainability expert and now I'm intersected and both. And so I'm in this unique position. I'm trying to find procurement professionals who are the same way. I'm trying to, so out there, whoever's listening, if you are a procurement professional that you're, you started in, you know, you're certified and and sourcing and and all that, but then along your journey, you became an expert in sustainability. I want to hear from you. So email me at, you know, email me. Email her. LinkedIn. Yes. We'll give you that too. Yeah. Give, um, yeah. LinkedIn. But I'll, I'll tell you from my experience, right. Coming from the corporate procurement side for myself, we were in supplier. I came from corporate sourcing into supplier diversity, doing supplier diversity. And then all of a sudden we started hearing who was it? It was one of the big four consulting firms. I just forgot who it was, but anyway, they start talking about, Oh, we're starting to do this thing around sustainability. And we're like, why in the heck does supplier diversity have anything to do with that, right? And we're all sitting there going, well, that's that's kind of a you thing, and that's great. We'll talk later. Then all of a sudden, like two years later, it comes and hits my department too. And all of a sudden, I'm like, so we the recycling police? I don't think I understand what you want us to do. So what I have found, Elba, is it's kind of like what they've done is they said, here's our supplier diversity team. They're kind of already locked into the social part of it. We're going to hand them now the rest of the eco part of it as well, too. And we've had to make ourselves ESG experts, right? By talking to folks like you, talking to other people going, what have you figured out? It's been a huge mind pool trying to put this all together. So I would say, personally, the professionals you're looking for are your really super engaged supplier diversity professionals because they are sitting inside sourcing. And they've been handed some of these other pieces around ESG and CSR 
And they're kind of leading it from that perspective. That's why it's, there's so much talk about this in the supplier diversity space. I know I've talked to other suppliers. They're like, where does all this come from? I'm like, let's now kind of become part of the supplier diversity professional. And even at that, we're starting to see the supplier diversity professional title go away. And you're starting to see things like sustainable sourcing, you know, corporately, you know, responsible sourcing professionals. Yeah. So the supplier diversity title starting to merge into more of this sourcing role around sustainability and uh, social responsible sourcing. And, you know, actually, Adam, this, this reminds me that in a large enterprise, you know they're doing sustainability right when they integrate sustainability into everyone's jobs. There shouldn't just be a sustainability department. It's like no matter where you are in your organization, you need to know what is ESG, what are the components, you know, how do I fit in, what could I do in my role? Ray Anderson was the the famous interface CEO. They've done a ton in sustainability and he used to say shine the light in the corner where you are and everyone should be doing that. Yeah. You know, it's so very true because when supplier diversity started out, especially when I started out in supplier diversity, you'd walk into an executive's office to talk to them about their supplier diversity goals, blah, blah. And you can see their eyes rolled in the back of their heads like, oh, here comes the DE&I guy. You're like, okay, I understand. Let's, let's talk to us. Then they finally kind of got on board. And they're like, oh, we see it now. And they welcome you. Then they started throwing the ESG portion into our roles. They're like, okay, you're going to talk. Oh God, now you can bring up that too. Okay, let me hear it. So I think it's going to be a progression. I think we're slowly getting there. We're talking about it, but I think we still, ESG in my opinion, from talking to people and, and reading still has not gotten the same bite the supplier diversity now has inside our corporations. And we've just got to keep working on it. Well, it's gotten big enough now to be politicized. And so maybe maybe we yes. talk a little bit about that. There has been some controversy that that I've read about in the news. Elba, can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. That could be another thing that's very intimidating for small SMBs is like, oh my God, I don't want to get in the middle of that and upset one company over another company, right? And so they're like, oh, I don't want to touch that. But what I like to focus on, and I just wrote a newsletter issue on this, is the difference between... ESG in the corporate sense, so what I would call corporate ESG versus ESG investing, right? And the controversy is coming that people are conflating those two things and they're different. Corporate ESG is what we talked about where those imaginary concentric circles that intersect in the middle, you know, environmental care, um, sustainably, you know, how you are socially responsible and then governing ethically. But then the other part, ESG investing, is actual is actually about managing a financial portfolio of investments. You know, that is not corporate ESG. And so some people are making it all about, you know, oh, it's it's this financial portfolio investing philosophy, but that's not what corporate sustainability is, right? But yes, if you go off on ESG investing, there are actually six different investment philosophies and it depends on what you want to choose some investment philosophies are that a company an investor wants to only buy stocks that only do a b or c and advance some type of social or economic effect right okay and that's fine if you want to do that that's choice number one okay then there's another type of esg investing that says hey i'm going to avoid investing in stocks that do bad things for example cigarette company right 
that that thing over there, ESG investing is something else that's not corporate ESG, right? Corporate ESG is about how you manage your business. And so I think part of the problem, Matt, to your question on this controversy is people are not understanding the difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is understandable because this term has kind of been dropped into our our national and international discourses about about governance and investing. And then it seems like we don't have enough education about what it is. And then suddenly people are arguing about it. So what you're doing, I mean, is just so vitally important for so many reasons. And that is one of them. And so I would tell you just a quick takeaway for everyone listening. Next time someone says, I I am so against ESG. The first thing you want to say is, do you mean corporate ESG or ESG investing? And they're going to be like, oh, I didn't know there was a difference. Right. Or if they say, oh, ESG investing, then you say, well, which of the six strategies of ESG investing are you against? And then they're going to be like, what, what, what six strategies? Right. And so just, I like to just ask questions and then have a conversation. Oh, did you know, I just learned this, you know, that ESG investing is one thing, corporate ESG is something else. This is, you know, just have a conversation to defuse the situation. You know, I think that's a very interesting point, Alba, because obviously the three of us are very passionate about this this field, ESG, supplier diversity, DE&I. You watch the news, and I don't know if you have these same conversations at home, guys, but you watch the news and it seems like the world's almost on fire, right? We, we hear our politicians, we hear international politicians. And I know I talk to my family, they're like, but Adam, when we hear you talk, it doesn't sound like it's that crazy yeah there are issues that you're working through there are wrongs that are trying to be right you're trying to move conversations but they're like it doesn't seem like it's as contentious and combative i'm like it's not because the true professionals that are really doing it are doing that they were like we understand you have a difference of opinion let's have a conversation you present your facts i'm going to present mine let's talk about it i may persuade you i might not you might persuade me you might not but they are being conversations it's not this combative craziness like you said and that whole esg controversy i just i just shake my head i'm like this is not how the space really works. What we see on the news is not how this space works. And it's, it's a little saddening, actually. Is You know, we got to be constructive. Even when we're running our businesses, our teams, you know, we're working with human beings who come from different backgrounds. Everyone has a different point of view. But we don't just insult people who work with us, right? We, we find a way to constructively have discussions. And this reminds me back to the kind of the three main things that are critical, human rights, the controversy, and scope three emissions. It's all about relationships, right? As SMBs, uh, you've got to really ensure that you have great relationships with your, you know, big companies that you are a supplier to because it enables transparency and sharing of information, which can keep you out of trouble. For example, one of the things that's critical right now is human rights. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the supply chain is full of dangers of where you are sourcing your materials, where the the materials are taken. For example, let's look at mining and where stuff starts in the earth, right, where it came from. And then you go all these different paths down the supply chain to finally it gets produced into a product. And maybe you're an SMB that's selling a finished good to a big company. Well, do you know where your stuff came from? And you know, where was it sourced? What country did it come out of the ground? What are their rules? You know, and the only way you can get this information is by having strong relationships where you're 
where you source from, they're not threatened by you and that you can talk to each other and figure out where did this stuff come from? Because guess what? You know, if it came from a specific area in China, there's a customs law that says that by definition, if it comes from this area, we assume it was violating human rights and you must have the burden of proof to prove that it was not violating human rights. So that's, it's very interesting because it's not like, you know, in the U.S., innocent until proven guilty, right? Well, in this law, you are guilty until you prove that you're innocent in the supply chain of, of these goods. And so the only way you're going to get this information is if you have strong relationships with all of your so sourcing partners and, you know, in a non-threatening way. So back, we circle back to this, you know, combative environment we were talking about. You can't have that, right? Because you've got to have strong relationships. Exactly. I'm assuming that in the past, and this is just this is just based on, I guess, the experiences that I've had over time, that we're working in a in a context where people were more willing to turn a blind eye to where material, raw materials come from down the supply chain. And then now there's a kind of culture shift happening around that. Is that the case? And and how are how are you encouraging people who don't necessarily initially see the value of trying to figure out if a raw material comes from Xinjiang? I'm imagining you're talking about Xinjiang in China. Like, how do you kind of help people shift that? Is it a regulation, a regulatory conversation? Or is there, like, are people able to shift because ethically it doesn't feel right? You know, because of my finance and business background, I always go back to the business and what are your business priorities. And if your business priorities are to increase your revenues and profits, well, that's not going to happen if you have risks that is going to cost you money, right? So you need to figure out a way to mitigate your risks. So what I would tell people is, hey, look, this is just a business strategy. If you want to reduce the risk to your business of having financial penalties from violating laws, then you should be interested, right? So forget about, you know, doing good or being good. Just think about, you know, about reducing risk to your organization, right? Most business people, even if they don't believe in social responsibility, they do believe in reducing risk and making more money, right? And so I would tell you, think of it that way. Eliminate, back to diffusing the controversy, and just think about how do I put it back to the business? The United Nations says that there are three guiding pillars for human rights, right? And it's it's pretty simple, which is we have a duty to protect, so protection. The second one is that we have a responsibility to respect these rights of human rights. And then here's the third one, which is we have the right to give access to effective remedies when bad things happen. So protect, respect, and remedy. And so within all of that, it's about reducing risk to the organization, right? Because if remedy is required, it could be expensive, whether that's, you know, that you have to financially support something that you messed up or whether you have to pay a fine. So my bottom line answer is just go back to the business to, to diffuse some of this emotional parts of, of sustainability. Right. Mm. That is awesome. So we know we're kind of coming to the close. I mean, we could have you on here for hours talking about this. I mean, this is such a, it's a topic that you don't cover in 30 minutes, right? You get oh, highlights. Sure. You just yes. get highlights, right? But you referenced your newsletter earlier in another comment. So I would love for you to kind of talk to us a little bit about your newsletter and how do people get hooked up with that? Because 
that'd be an awesome source of, of information. Really is because like you said, it can't be done in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, right? And so what I did was I had a new year's resolution over a year ago where I said, I'm going to write a newsletter every single week. And it was hard, you know, every Monday, no matter you know what happens, unless it's a holiday, I'm publishing a newsletter and it's super short, usually like three to 400 words, which is very short. I use lots of pictures and I basically talk about what is the most relevant ESG information right now that people need to learn about. And it's written without jargon, just very simply. So if you register, sign up for the newsletter, it's on LinkedIn under my profile. So just go out and look me up and maybe we'll put a link in the show notes. You know, read that. Like I said, it's super short. And so every week you'll increase your sustainability knowledge. I love that. Can attest to that. I've been following Elba's um, newsletter on LinkedIn for over a year now and I've loved getting to follow it. So I feel like I've learned a lot. Yep. And it's an easy way to learn. Yep. To learn terminology and then not feel intimidated and, and then be able to pick up on how can apply, I apply that in my business. Yeah. Yes. Before, before we close, you know, we've referenced on this show several times, the, the SEC's regulations, and we wanted to hear from an expert what your take is on scope three emissions and the regulations. So if you could just tell us a little bit about that before we go and how that affects SMBs. Sure thing. So listen, it's very interesting. This path, they've been traveling down this path, I want to say for over a year where the SEC said, hey, we're going to put out this rule and they've made it very transparent and there's been a big ability, of course, to provide feedback to the proposed rule. And so it's still going, you know, initially in March, it was supposed to be out. Then in April, you know, now I'm hearing it might be October. So they're taking a lot of the feedback and a lot of, there were thousands of letters submitted to the SEC on what people wanted and didn't want. And one thing is clear is people don't want that scope three rule. So we don't know if the scope three requirement is going to be in the final rulemaking The scope three requirement would be that these big corporations that are publicly traded are going to have to disclose how much of their emissions come from scope three, which means the downstream, you know, everything from your suppliers. And so that is, it is very daunting that every corporation would have to go to all their suppliers and get information on where did your stuff come from? What are the emissions of your stuff? Because we have to count it as part of our footprint. So that rule is still unclear. So we don't know what it's the final is going to have in it. And we also don't know the date by which you have to comply, right? So there's likely going to be, you know, the first compliance is 2025, for example, or 2026. So we don't know the whole schedule yet. But for certain, there is going to be disclosure that's required from the big companies to say how much of their scope one and two emissions greenhouse gas inventory, you know, to disclose it publicly. And what are the risks from what's happening in the climate change. Nice. So it sounds to me like we're going to have to have you back on at least in the fall after that comes out to explain to us what's going on. Oh, that would be, yeah. That would be amazing. And specifically how it impacts SMBs, you know, um, because that's important. Last thing I want to make sure I cover just real quick. There are some free tools out there. And so we're going to definitely let you 
have links to where those free tools are because they're terrific on, you know, you don't know where to begin, start here. And we, oh, we will we will provide those links in the description to the episode. Uh, so you'll be able to access those. This is to our listeners. You'll be able to access those both on Higher Ground and Breaking Barriers website and then also on plat- platforms where you listen to podcasts. So you will be able to access those links from Elba there. That's fantastic. And reach out to me. You can reach me at discover at sustainabilitynavigator.com. So discover at sustainabilitynavigator.com or on LinkedIn. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you so much, Elba, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. And we look forward to having you back in the fall. Yes. Awesome. Would love that. That would be so wonderful. Yeah. So to all of our listeners, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn at Chloe Gidry-Reed, at Adam Moore, and at Elba Pareja Gallagher. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, check out our previous shows, and stay tuned for next time. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground dot I-O. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.